And as we lay a foundation to get into this, um, I think it can be really, I think the foundation is very important. Please follow me in the introduction. I think it'll be a help to our teenage, really to all, but to our young people. But there's just so much pulling at you as you're getting ready to make some crucial decisions and and many of you in that transition deciding if if the faith of your parents is going to be yours, if this is real, if this is what life is actually all about. And that transition is important where God becomes your God and and how you choose to view the world. Because how you view the world, what we refer to as a world view, um, will affect all the decisions you make in life. And, and we have a problem here, well, with the church in Thessalonica. And of course, if, it's been a few weeks since we've been here with the revival taking place. We had, uh, uh, of course, a missionary in last week and, and whatnot. But we understand this is a church that Paul established. Um, this is you know, coming after he, got, after he left the, uh, Philippi, the very first church that was in Europe. And, and this was a key city. It was the capital of the area. It was... Uh, an important geographical, political location. Paul always hit those locations, by the way, if you follow him. I mean, he, 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 he had a purpose everywhere he went. And this church, of course, had a lot of battles, a lot of struggles, and we got into it. They were also confused about events concerning the coming of the Lord. And so that's, this is where we've been getting into this in chapter 4 and 5 right now. And their, their worldview, if you will, got off a little bit, and Paul had to remind them here. In these first few verses, you're looking at this wrong. He had to change their perception of how they were viewing the events taking place. We need to do the same thing many times. Verse number 1 of chapter 5, just the first three verses. He said, But of the times and seasons, brethren, you have no need that I write unto you. For you, for yourselves, know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as the thief in the night. For when they shall say, Peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them, as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. We're going to, we're going to stop right there, because that's, we won't have time to get more into that. But he does continue with this thought. But we're, we will not get past these first three verses here, here this evening. So let's go ahead and start with a word of prayer. Father in heaven, Lord, I ask your blessing, Lord, upon the service tonight. Lord, I pray that you be glorified and honored. Lord, please control what I say and how I say it. Help me to stay true to your word. Lord, may the point of what we're seeing here be clear. Lord, may it help us, may it change us, may it challenge us, may it draw us closer to you. Please work on hearts, meet the needs that are here. Lord, if there is anyone here who's never truly been converted, Lord, I, I certainly do pray for that, that that conviction and that drawing, that they repent and place their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, please may you be glorified, Lord. I pray and ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. The last couple of messages, of course, we've been dealing with the raptures. We finished up chapter 4. Um, uh, uh, two or three weeks ago, and the last time we were here, I dealt with the timing of the rapture. Actually, we dealt with the, the different theological positions concerning it, whether it's pre-mid, uh, pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib. And, and we went through that to show why the pre-trib is a very scriptural position of all of them. And that the problems that arise when you are mid-trib or pre-wrath, when you are post-trib, and, and, and why that doesn't line up with what we see in Scripture. But we do know that an event is going to take place when that trump shall sound, and the dead in Christ shall rise first, and we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, so shall we ever be with the Lord. That is the rapture. That is that snatched away. 
That will happen in a twinkling of an eye, it tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. But the day is coming when the Lord will come for the believers. And he dealt with that in chapter 4. But he changes gears here when he gets into chapter 5. He's moving on from the rapture to the dreadful day of the Lord. We're going to see the importance of this truth. Uh, the importance of knowing truth and how you and how you apply truth, how you use it, and how you view life, as well as we see the deception that this world is under. We see knowing truth can help settling your spirit, really give you a settled spirit, give you peace about yourself, give you a, a sense of, of 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 an anchor in your life. When you actually know truth and you respond to truth. We also see, though, that when you're making decisions in life based on deception, which we see in verse 3, it leads to destruction. When it comes to eschatology, future things like we've been looking at here, like in the book of First Thessalonians right now. When it comes to eschatology, of course, we need truth, and then we need to use that truth in the right way. The devil has different ways, I think, that he gets us off in eschatology. Sometimes you can mean right doctrinally, but you can get so obsessed in not even using how the Lord intends us to use eschatology, use it in a completely wrong manner. But we'll get more into that next week. That'll start covering it down from verse 4 on down. We want it to affect how we live when we know, in truth, what is coming. You certainly don't want to be deceived. You don't want to be, you don't want to be believing something that's not true, and you're acting upon something that's false uh, in life, something that's not, that, that's not true. Just like we're going to see here, they're going to be saying, uh, it's peace, it's safety, everything's all right, it's okay. But the fact is, that's not true. Everything wasn't okay. But when you make decisions based on something that's not true, the consequences are enormous. It can give you a false sense of security in life when there is none to begin with. Most in this world truly are deceived. Jerry showed me an article with even the Alaska legislator prayed to the... uh, Which God was it they prayed to? Odin. They have a statue of him up in there. He showed it. I couldn't believe you actually have a statue of, of this God they made with their hands and they're praying to this. The, and this was the committee, I guess, that's in charge of the finances of our state. The world is deceived. We live in a day, and, and this I am guessing at, but I, I would assume that this is very accurate. I don't think anybody can argue with it. We live in a day when I believe there's more atheists than any other time in world history. Right now. Again, and this is incredible. I mean, for a person to actually believe there is no God, that there is no creator, is mind-boggling. The naturalist worldview dominates even if you're not an atheist. You have Christians that live life that make decisions as practical atheists. I mean, and have you ever listened? I enjoy listening to the different arguments that the atheists can give out at times whether that's Dawkins or whoever. 
um, I'll, I'll, from reading, reading their books or seeing the different videos. I also enjoy listening to a lot of our, uh, you know, even some of this here. I remember from reading some of our guys that are big into apologetics on creation side of the house, like Ken Ham and others. But when you listen to their arguments at times, it really is mind-boggling. We might argue, I remember uh, Dawkins was being asked about, well, so where do you believe life began? And he started listening to these crazy things. And the guy kept on saying, he said, well, where did that come from? Getting down, well, where did matter come from then? And he knew he was being interviewed by this guy who believed in a creator. And so he tried to turn it onto him and say, well, where did God come from? We were, he's basically equivocating the argument. He's wrong. You can't equivocate the two. One is arguing in the beginning dirt. The other is arguing in the beginning God. It's not a logical argument. Matter has to have a start. It has to have a creator. There, there's no other explanation. God does not. There absolutely has to be a creator. And the fact is, the Bible has the answer. There is a creator, there is a God, and He is the God of the Bible. But again, they say, but when did God begin? Where does he come from? You're asking the wrong question. You don't understand. He is eternal. Do you understand? For anything to exist, something has to be eternal. It's not helium like they're trying to speculate on. It's God. The God of the Bible is not affected by... I remember remember reading this years ago. Very true. The God of the Bible, he's not affected by time, space, and matter. He's not. He's the creator of time, space, and matter. <clears throat> he is eternal. If he's not, if he is affected by time, space, and matter, then he's not God. That's not possible. Something has to be able to create time, space, and matter. If God is affected by it, again, then he's not God. Time, space, and matter all have to come into existence. They have to exist at the exact same time. They do. If you have matter, you have to have space because you have to have somewhere to put it. If you have matter, if you're going to have it, you have to have a time that it starts when you're going to put it. So if you have time, space, and matter, they all have to exist. They have to come into existence at the exact same moment. Do you know there's only one book in all of the world that answers that question perfectly? The Word of God. In the very first verse in Genesis. In the beginning, time. God created the heavens, space, and the earth, matter. Time, space, and matter. A trinity, just like God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. All three that He created are in a Trinitarian format. They are. Time is past, present, and future. Space, length, width, and height. Matter, gas, liquid, solid. You don't understand how amazing the Bible is, how it answers one of the deepest of life's questions in the first ten words of the book. It's incredible. (laughs) 
Again, the idea that God somehow should be affected by time, space, and matter is absurd. It's like saying, whoever created this pulpit has to be in the pulpit. No, he has to be apart from it. He created it. He's the one that gave it its start, its life. Again, those who think that God has to have a start don't understand the meaning of creation, and they've never even considered their own arguments. And yes, that includes men like Dawkins, regardless of the amount of degrees behind his name. I have, I, have, I have read the discussions of actually honest atheists who do understand when they actually sit down and think about it, something has to be eternal. It has to be. Do you understand the only thing that makes sense to that is a creator? Do you understand there's only one book in the world that answers that question perfectly in the first ten words? That's it. So when we view life, how we are to view this world is knowing there is a creator. And we have his word. A biblical worldview in how you approach things. As compared to a naturalist worldview, which what dominates our culture. When you... Start from any other worldview apart from a biblical worldview, you will always come to wrong conclusions because your foundation is not based in truth. It's not based in truth. Therefore, the conclusions, when you, if, you, if you start off wrong, you're way off. John, you were a, a navigator? Is that right? If you're just off a slightest degree and you're heading out, that can mean a major problems, can it not? And that's just 60 miles, you're off one mile. You try going 3,000. You put 60 into 3,000, I don't know what that is, but 500 miles you're probably off or something like that. Easily. When you start off with the wrong premise, what you do from that point on is affecting you. You set yourself up for deception. Many people today are under the deception that there is no God. Or they have a very wrong view about God. I mean, think about this in our day. We see our world headed in some type of direction right now. The entire world recognizes it. They do. We can see the events. We see the hatred. We see the violence. We see the immorality. We see the confusion. We can see this world is clearly heading a certain direction. There's no question about it. Now, if you try and find the answer to this apart from God without a biblical worldview as to what is taking place, if you try and find this from a naturalist worldview, it leads to nothing but despair. Because there's no answer. Man lives in fear of the direction of the world. They're crying for understanding, trying to find meaning. But if you don't start and go to God, if you follow a naturalist worldview, there's no real purpose in life. There's no real goal. It's just a product of evolution. You, you, when you come to that conclusion, you will understand despair. You will run to escapism. You will run. You'll, you'll turn to anything for your answer. You'll turn to humanism like the world is doing now, thinking the solutions in our politics. It's not. There's a sovereign God. You have to start with a biblical worldview. There's a sovereign God who is in control right now. 
we have truth. We know the direction of this world, although chaotic, is very much under God's control. Now listen to me, though. We can claim we believe the Bible, and we can. But we can fall into the deception like the church at Thessalonica, and all of a sudden, our worldview is not what it should be. Paul's saying, Paul's fine, we're going to see her. Paul's telling him, hey, wait, don't forget what I told you. You're viewing this wrong. He said, we know what's coming. But, if, if you believe the Bible, but it's too abstract in your life, and you're not actually living from a biblical worldview, you will do nothing but fret at the current world conditions. Because you fail to see, to view it from the idea of a sovereign God who is completely in control, guiding the direction of this world. Listen, stop fretting. Live as if there is a God and He knows what He's doing. He is in control. View the world for the reality of God. Even in our world with all that's going on, all the chaos we see, God is guiding this world toward a goal and toward a purpose. And the goal that we are being directed to is given to us right in our first couple of verses. We are being directed to the day of the Lord. The direction this world is going is exactly, exactly how God has put all this together. We currently live in the day of man. That will change one day. Man has an element of freedom right now in this world. He's sort of the kingdom of this world, and we've got the kingdom of darkness as well that very much affects it. But man has free choice right now. That day is coming to an end when the day of the Lord arrives. Our text deals with the day of the Lord. We will see how we need to be directed by Scripture. That needs to be how we view what's taking place. And then secondly, we'll see how this world, those who are lost, are certainly deceived by Satan by what is coming in relation to the coming of the Lord. Look at the first two verses. He says, But of the times and of the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I write unto you. For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. We, of course, are to be directed by Scripture concerning the coming of the Lord. We're to have a biblical worldview when it comes to this. He talks about these times in the seasons. Times refers to various time periods and how God has worked. You know, God who had sundry times and in diverse manners. The seasons deal with the characteristics or or what it was that marked those times. It's fairly easy for us to define in our day, because we're, we're clearly in the last days. We see the characteristics of our day that define that. We see the return of Israel as a nation. The rise of Russia in, as a world power. The, the hatred for Israel in the world. The immorality that's taking place. Signs of the time. The characteristics, the season that we're in right now. We see that. Remember, at this church, many of them got confused, expecting the Lord to come in their lifetime, and confused when other believers were starting to die. And so, because they were no longer viewing what was taking place from what Paul had taught them, Paul says, hold on! 
Remember when I was there. I told you what was going to happen. He's telling, get that back in line. Brethren, you have no need that I write unto you. For you yourselves know perfectly. What's he talking about? When he was there. He said, remember what I told you. Even though you get taught the Bible, you know what? You still have to remember it and use it. Trust it. Paul is letting them know, trust the Word of God, not the confusion that's come in. And we'll see it today. We'll see people just with all that's taking place in the last year as if, as if they think God is no longer in control. No, maintain the biblical worldview. There's peace in knowing God's in control. God's not up in heaven saying, well, this world's just really getting out of control right now. I, I can't handle this. It's heading towards a design goal that he specifically told us about called the day of the Lord. He tells them the day of the Lord is coming. Now the day of the Lord, what is it? It's found 19 times in the Old Testament. Four times in the New Testament. Acts chapter 2, our current passage, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and of course 2 Peter chapter 3. Six times the day of the Lord is referred to as the day of doom. Three times it is referred to as the day of vengeance. Revelation chapter 6 verse 17 uh, calls, the great, calls it the great day of His wrath. It always refers to powerful judgments by God on sinners. The culmination of God's fury and wrath. In the Old Testament, it usually had a pattern that's fairly interesting that most of us, I'm sure, are familiar with when it comes to the day of the Lord. It had a very near fulfillment of that prophecy given concerning the day of the Lord, a historical aspect of it, and then one very much down the road. For instance, go over to the book of Joel. I'll just cover one of them. I have several here, but I'm just going to cover a couple of them. I'll cover just one, probably. And I'll mention the others. Daniel, Hosea, Joel, so you can find it quick. Now, when you're in the first couple chapters of this book, it talks about a sort of a near meaning of, the, of this day of the Lord, of this coming judgment, which... As you read throughout, it, it, it can change gears a little bit with it. But it, the near one dealt with God's wrath coming down. He was going to use the Assyrians as a means of judgment. But it also had the far meaning that we're dealing with here tonight. Like, look in chapter 3. Look at verse 9. Proclaim... Proclaim ye this among the Gentiles. Prepare war. Wake up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. This is still under, under, we didn't go through all the verses here, but we're dealing with the day of the Lord and, and, and how, it, how it goes from a, 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 a near fulfillment of the prophecy with the Assyrians to something very distant. This is dealing with the distance. Beat your plowshares into swords, your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am strong. Assemble yourselves and come all ye heathen and gather yourselves together round about. Thither calls thy mighty ones to come down, O Lord. Let the heathen be wakened and come to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there will I sit to judge all the heathen round, round about. 
Put ye the sickle for the harvest is ripe. Come get you down for the press is full. The fat overflow for their wickedness is great. Multitudes of multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon and the stars shall be dark and the stars shall withdraw their shining. Then the Lord shall roar out of Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem. And the heavens and the earth shall shake. But the Lord will be the hope of his people and the strength of the children of Israel. Here's the distant meaning dealing with the literal second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. We see this same pattern in Obadiah. We see it in Zephaniah. Zephaniah chapter 1, dealing with the day of the Lord in relation to the Babylonian exile. Chapter 3, though, dealing with that final great judgment like we see right here in Joel chapter 3. The day of the Lord is not simply a single event. It encompasses and deals with the the return of Jesus Christ, the wrath that is associated with it, all the way through to a new heaven and new earth. Look over in 2 Peter chapter 3. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us. We're not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat, and the earth also, and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Seeing then all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons are she to be in a holy conversation and godliness, looking for and hasten to the coming of the day of God? which the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved and the elements shall mount with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to His promise, look for a new heaven and new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. So the day of the Lord that we are dealing with, that Paul is dealing with here, deals with the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ when He comes with the wrath that is poured down upon this earth all the way until we get to more than a thousand years later when we have a new heaven and new earth. This is what we're referring to by the day of the Lord. This should affect how we live. This should affect how we, how we approach the world right now. Listen, to our young people, to our adults, you don't have to go around fretting. Saying, what, what world is this that I'm coming into? We don't have to fret. Boy, it would have been so much easier to have been born in 1950 and have that. No! The Lord has you here for a reason right now. Listen, life is about God, not about our easement. If that's a word. I think it is. I need, my own voc- I need my own glossary, Bob. You know, I had a glossary. I need my own word glossary. But it's all about Him. Listen, the Lord has you here at this time for a reason. So as we see the chaos of our world, with all of a sudden people, people able to pick their own gender, with the Alaska state legislator praying to a wooden God. You know what? I don't have to fret. There's a sovereign God in control. He has me here at this time for a reason. Yes. And before it gets really bad, before he steps into play, I I mean, I want to preach. I don't want to see anybody go through that. I I don't mean that lightly. But I'm gone. I'm gone. So Paul, reminding him here what he taught them in his teaching. He says it's going to come as a thief in the night. 
By the way, contextually, thief in the night scripture, it doesn't refer to the rapture. It always actually refers to the second coming of Christ, actually. Um, which I, I understand the rapture is the first part of that. And that's how I teach that. But contextually, when we see it from, um, we'll look at that here in a second, Matthew chapter 24 and right here. He's changed. The rapture's already taken place in, in, in chapter 4. We're getting to the, he changes his pronoun use now. He's going to they and them, referring to the lost word, world and the judgment that they're going to be experiencing. And he says, listen, you need, to be, you need to be directed by Scripture in how you view what's taking place. And then, and then look at verse number 3 here. Let's go back to 2 Thessalonians. Let me go on to the second point and, and last point here. He says, The day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. For when they shall say, Peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them, as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. Of course, we could, I could just preach here. I thought about just preaching on the fact that they shall not escape. This is certain judgment. There's no escaping it. But we see the pronoun usage here change. So he's dealing with the lost world, the judgment that's going to be coming, how they are deceived. And, and they're going to need to be deceived. I mean, you, you can think about the rapture is going to take place. And all of a sudden they're going to be saying, listen, it's all right. Everything's under control. You've got the rise of the Antichrist. He's going to make this seven-year peace agreement with Israel. He's going to look like the Savior of the world. They're going to be saying, peace and Savior, it's okay. We got this. And the world is deceived. They're not viewing the world from a biblical standpoint, but from a deceptive standpoint. I think Paul is no doubt here referring to to Matthew chapter 24, whether it was Matthew himself, whether it was Peter, whether it was Barnabas, I don't know, uh, who told, whether it was Christ himself, of, of going over that Olivet Discourse that he gave in Matthew 24. Look over at Matthew 24. This is when the disciples asked of when the return of Christ was. When, when, when would his kingdom come, basically? Excuse me. When is the kingdom going to come? When, when is the end, end of this age? When does it change? Verse 4, And Jesus answered, said unto him, Take heed that no man deceive you, for many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. Shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. Uh, See that you be not troubled, for all these things must come to pass. The end is not yet, for nations shall rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There shall be famines and pestilence and earthquakes in diverse places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. And, and, And it continues on and on right here. Again, this is not dealing, by the way, with the church age right here. We covered this when I went through Matthew. If you didn't listen to that, please go back and listen to the series of sermons on the Olivet Discourse, starting with verse 1. There's, I think, four sermons that I cover this in. This is dealing with what is coming in preparation for the Lord's second coming to the earth. It's not dealing with the destruction of the temple, as some commentators say, or our age. And so they had asked what the signs of the times were. And so the Lord gives out, okay, here are some things that will have to take place before He returns. Look at verse 8. He says, all these are the beginning of sorrows. The word means similar to what Paul used, what we just looked at in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Birth pains. When a woman starts labor, it's dealing with. Now, you think about this. When does a woman start labor? Assuming a normal pregnancy. 
Not at the beginning, not in the middle, but right at the end when the baby's going to be delivered. It's probably going somewhere between 5 and 172 hours. That was funny. Nobody got that? That was... Man. But labor comes at the end. He's dealing with right before Christ returns. Look at verse 15. I'm going to look at verse 13. Let me cover that one too. But he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. Let me cover that one a little bit. This again is dealing with going back into the tribulation time frame. The end of the age, the end of this current world as we know it before this, the establishment of Christ's kingdom, which is what they were asking. So what that means is, getting into this, is that there are <coughs> people alive at that time. When it takes place. At the very end, people who go through these events, who go through these birth pains, and endure unto the end. And we understand that when it comes down to the kingdom, the judgment of the sheep and the goats, all those who are alive that enter into the kingdom age are saved. Every single one. When that kingdom age starts, when Christ does from the judgment of the sheep and the goats, all that takes place at Armageddon, when all this is getting established... Of, of those who enter in are those who came to know Christ during the seven years are still alive. They're entering. Verse 14. And the gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, then shall the end come. This also has to be during the tribulation time and not before. We've heard it preached before that this, this is what's going to lead into the rapture. No. We went through the book of Revelation. The greatest revival the world will ever see will actually be during the tribulation time. You have 144,000 Apostle Pauls going about preaching. You have angels proclaiming the gospel in the air. Everyone will hear. Everyone will hear. And then, of course, verse 15. When you therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel... We know exactly when that takes place, don't we? Three and a half years in the midst of the tribulation, the Antichrist will perform this. That's when that will happen at the temple in Israel. Three and a half years. Rapture's already taken place. And then look, so, so as he's going through it, by the way, if, if you listen to the sermon, I tie those in with, when I preached on this, and we went, actually went through it, and I took my time and didn't do it in ten minutes, I showed how it lines up with the seals, trumpets, and vials that are in the book of Revelation. How they line up. What Christ is giving is what John is going to give going through the, the seals, trumpets, and vials, which the rapture has already taken place. And if you don't watch, watch how this scene ends down here. Look, look, where, look where it comes to when you get down to verse 29. Immediately, immediately, after the tribulation of those days, shall the sun be darkened, and the moon shall not give her light, and the stars shall fall from the heaven, and the powers of the heavens shall be shaken. Look, look at the punctuation right there. It's not finished. And then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. Then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. It's going to hit. Paul is referred to, he's reminding them of when he went through that with them. 
You can even get into verse 32 through 34 dealing with it. The parable of the fig tree. I remember I used to teach and preach. You no longer can do that. We used to teach, well, that, this was when Israel became a nation. And that generation won't pass away. We're beyond a time of a generation for that already. And yet, too often we double down. Because we don't want to admit we're wrong. We hate to admit we're wrong, don't we? We want to double down and explain it away. Do you understand because of that, that's why you have an SDA church right now, Seventh-day Adventist church? Because of doubling down on error? Because of predicting when Christ would come? Pastor Miller of the First Baptist Church in New York City? It didn't happen, did it? Nope, it didn't happen. Now, he repented. No man knows the day or the hour. I'm sorry. His assistant pastor did not. He taught... This is, this is the beginning of a doctrine called... Uh, oh, what is that? Investigative judgment. I'm trying to think there's another word for it as well under SDA doctrine. But that's when that began, became foundational for the SDA church. He gets hooked up with a woman prophet called Ellen G. White who had in a vision the fourth commandment lifted above the others the Sabbath day. What he did was double down on his error. Refusing to see, wait, I got this wrong. What he's saying here in this is that when all these things happen, when they're seeing this, because it's such a short time frame, that generation is seeing Christ return. It happens in a seven-year time frame. And these are the events. When all this begins to hit, this is the start of the day of the Lord and the end of the day of man. We will then enter into the millennial reign of Christ, which I dealt with last time we were in here. Now listen to me. So how does all this affect us? Think of how I started this. Think of what was going on with this church. They were worried. They were concerned. Paul, Paul had a heart for them. He, he knew they didn't have to be. And he, what he's trying to get them to understand is, listen, remember when I was there, we talked about, even though Matthew 24 wasn't written yet, but that's what he was dealing with, that sermon. So for us, I'm saying it like this. He said, remember when I was with you when we dealt with Matthew 24? What the Lord Jesus Christ taught us about the end times. He says, listen, no, you need to view things in light of this. When we see all that's going on in the world right now, and we're making decisions, listen, young person to, to Bob. We make decisions based on the Bible. Trusting it. Of knowing it's true. Don't make your decisions based on the confusion of this world. Don't let it get you down. Listen, God's in control again. He does have us here for a reason. What we're seeing take place is all leading to the coming day of the Lord. It's setting up for it. It is. I don't know when it's going to be. I don't know how long it's going to be from here. But it is. So, when we leave here, when we approach life with what's going on, have that biblical worldview. Listen, this world is in complete chaos right now. They actually need to see someday that looks like they have an anchor about them that is settled. Where, they, where, where you actually have an answer for them. When you have an answer, well, the answer is God. Really? And, and, and they might even give you some of the arguments they heard to dismiss God. Respond to it. I'm telling you, it doesn't take much to get a person to realize there's a creator. Understand, there's just a level of deception that's over them. That's it. The God of this world have blinded them. God's word and his Holy Spirit can change that in a heartbeat. 
give truth. You'll be amazed at how God can use you with heads bowed and eyes closed. I don't think we have any first-time visitors here at all this evening. But still, let me ask, if you're here right now and this thing of your salvation is bothering you, you're not certain that you have genuinely been converted, that you repented and placed your faith in Christ, say, Pastor, I need you to pray for me. I don't know that I've truly been converted. Please pray for me. Would you just put your hand up where I can see it and you can put it back down? I see just a couple of small children is all I'm seeing. All right, Christian. How are you actually viewing the world? If you had to define your worldview, would it be one of a, from a conservative liberal standpoint? Would it be from a naturalist standpoint, a practical atheist? When we, for our own heart, for our family, and for the world around us, We need to see it for the God who is there, who's in control. To have the anchor we need and the anchor we need for others. God is guiding this world, just like Paul was telling him in, to the day of the Lord. A fearful, dreadful day when the time of man ends. If you need to come and pray, you come and pray. Father in heaven, bless this invitation, Lord, I pray this in Christ's name.